Welcome back to Twin Peaks The Return, a Season 3 podcast. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch. And we have a special guest with us today, Eloise Ross. Hi Andy, hi Hayley. Um, and Eloise, uh, what special background do you have to bring to the podcast? Well, I was originally asked by you guys to come in and talk about all of David Lynch's uh, film noir influences in Twin Peaks, you know, femme fatale specifically and a whole number of things. Um, you know, I actually feel like if I was to talk about the original series, I could do this really quite well and extensively. The new one is not so straightforward, so we'll just have to see, um, you know, how my so-called expertise goes with the, the chats today. Let's see. It's okay. We're all stumbling through this together. Mm -hmm. Listeners too. Uh, so we'll begin at the opening scene of part two, uh, which, which actually picks up from where we left off with the same characters with uh, Bill Hastings, who's in his cell being visited by his wife, Phyllis, played by Cornelia Guest, um, and they're being locked in there by Sergeant Dave Mackley. Um, what do you make of this opening scene? There's like, it's quite high drama. We've kind of thrown away, straight, straight into this really intriguing setup. There's some beautiful framing going on. My first thing of that, that, that I really noticed during this particular scene was, I think you'll all remember on the last episode, I was initially skeptical about mm. Matthew Lillard being a part of Twin Peaks, but I have been, I've been thoroughly shown up. <laughs> I, he, he is really bringing it and doing an excellent job. I was really particularly taken by the way his face contorts when he yes. finally snaps at yeah. Phyllis and snarls at her. Now you listen here. Mm. I almost felt like there were shades of um, Leyland in the way oh, yeah, that he yeah, yeah. just broke down and, and kind of like the anger and the rage finally came out mm. of him. Yeah. Well, as we know, David Lynch is, and especially in Twin Peaks, because it, it's heavily indebted to soap opera and melodrama and all that, is like so into just portraying male's tears and mm. men crying he loves to put the focus on them and so get obviously matthew lilliard is, is doing that um purposefully yeah 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 i think i love his transition he can move so quickly from being scary to back to being like pathetic at first I, yeah i was maybe similar to you Haley. i just i'm like he's so tied up with you know the 90s <laughs> and, <laughs> and where he's been as since well. then yeah, yeah that i was sort of like what is he doing here mm. but um <laughs> obviously something pretty interesting yeah. yeah there's actually a really beautiful interview with him in IndieWire where he essentially says all the things that we've been saying of just like I didn't know why they picked me <laughs> and I was just so happy to be to, to be involved and to hopefully bring what Lynch was was after with with my character so I really recommend that listeners uh check that one out because yeah. it was a really delightful interview yeah, yeah. Well, this scene, his scene here, I think, is fantastic, and the way that it so quickly sets up the fact that he thinks he's dreamt visiting the apartment of Ruth, and there's already we have this beautiful dissonance going on between. But your fingerprints were there, but I was never there. Sort of uh, going on, but then that, the scene finishes in this with this beautiful panning shot across the cells to what I think is one of the strongest <laughs> images we've seen yet, which is the the blackened figure in the adjacent cell. Still, I have no idea what that means, but that the way that it appeared and then disappeared was quite miraculous. Yes. Um, I, I know that you haven't read it yet, Andy, but there's also an interview with David Lynch in um, Entertainment 
weekly um ew and the um interviewer there actually specifically asked him about this this blackened figure who kind of looks like he's he's been in a fire or covered in coal or something like that and uh lynch specifically says like he's very evasive throughout this interview as lynch is but he does say something along the lines of keep your eye out for that guy <laughs> so possibly it's an image that might return again mm. it's it's definitely a very unnerving image. I love Lynch in, in interviews. He's so determined to make things, you know, much more impenetrable than they even are on screen, mm. um, which is great. But, you know, it's like this character, is he, why is he there? Is he listening? Is he spying? Um, and then he floats away or is he trapped somehow? Um, and that was, you know, some depiction of his of his spiritual being. Mm. Can we also mention the fact that the way his head just floats off into space there is <laughs> an example of Lynch's, like, insistence on really crappy special effects sometimes? <laughs> yeah, that was one thing I was expecting. That's one thing the first two series did really, really well, was crappy special effects. Then nobody's going to figure that digitised owl appearing at no. the end of the second season. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, to um, signify Bob's um, moving on from Leyland's body. Anyway, um... Um, I'm really glad we've got you on for this particular episode, Eloise, because I thought this was a beautiful instantaneous setup of a classic noir drama that's going on between Phyllis and Bill and then uh, her dating his lawyer who's his only chance of freedom. Oh, yes. So Phyllis and Bill and then Bill says, I know that you're dating, that you're sleeping with George and then there's that, you know, that kind of moment and then she goes home and there's a third man and who is the third man? What is that character? And I mean, that is at the heart, you know, there's jealousy there, there's desire, there's um, betrayal. We're going to be reading detail into, or noir detail into Twin Peaks, you need to always have some kind of, you know, theory behind it. So mm. we'll just have to wait and see yeah. if we get any of that later rather than just, mm. you know, references. But there you go. Yeah, it did feel like we were, we were just re- kickstarting a new murder mystery. It felt like um, being here in Buckthorn, South Dakota. Yeah. set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the more familiar things so far, I think, which isn't saying much. So uh, then back, um, the next scene, we, we're back uh, at the house. Phyllis enters and then... Uh, Evil Cooper is there. Oh, hang on, Doppelcoop? Doppelcoop. Sorry, Doppelcoop. 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 This is our preferred nomenclature, we've decided. <laughs> so he says, you did good, you follow human nature perfectly, and so it's that her behaviour is predictable because he's a, you know, a superhuman or, or whatever he is, he's a spirit and he knows how humans are going to react. And that's also, you know, the key to noir is that everyone is readable, everyone is predictable, everyone can go behind each other's back, double cross and triple cross, a quadruple cross, you know, that's mm-hmm. like, that's what's so great about it. And so that's, I guess, what that line is all about, is that humans are the vulnerable ones here. And, and then, yeah, and then this is George's gun. Mm. And then we're dispensed with Phyllis. Yes, yeah, mm. done. Yeah, and it was really beautiful. Like it was in domestic setting. It was very dark. It was very shadowy. It was very sudden. And then he did that sign, which I think may be a signature move, shooting through the eyeball. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's also another mm, the right eye. Well. I noted. Yes. I don't know mm. what that's about yet, but we'll see. Well, it was it was the same situation as Ruth, I believe. She was also killed through the right eye. Mm. Mm. It is the opposite eye, I believe, just FYI, to Faye Dunaway's eye that gets shot out in Chinatown. Nice it's her one. left eye, okay. I think. So I don't know what that is, but I just <laughs> thought I'd mention it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and then we have our first scene in Las Vegas, and it's so mm. great to see Paul Fischler back from his legendary scene from Mulholland Drive in Winky's Diner. Mm. Yes. 
So yes. it was so great because I was like, where is he from? Oh my God, that's where he's from. And yeah. Then, and what does this scene mean? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Obviously, we see Las Vegas in a very similar way that we saw New York when it was introduced in part one. Just that kind of cityscape scrawl and slow you know, mm. movement across it. Lynch's cityscape shots, are they're really something else. They're very, very warm and inviting, and yet they're also simultaneously venal. Yeah. Okay. As in, like, there is definitely a sense of menace about mm. them. Mm. Yeah, because he doesn't go for the signature shots to let you know which city you're in. Oh, it's basically just no. buildings, so you kind of could be anywhere, in a way. It's just metropolis. Mm. So, yeah, we have another story thread being born here with uh, Mr. Todd working as a concierge young man called Roger looks eager and nervous and then he passes him $20,000 in two bundles and says, tell her he has the job. And then this is also like another allusion to an anonymous billionaire that we've come across before. So another cityscape, another city is signifying evil. I really loved Mr. Todd's line where he goes, Roger, you better hope you never get involved with someone like him. Never have someone like him in your life, which now makes me think that maybe... The, the, the operations in Las Vegas and New York are actually extensions of the Doppelkoop mm. evil empire of surveillance and making sure that nothing gets out of the back of the Black Lodge. I feel like there's no yeah. doubt about it. There must be some reason yeah. why these stories are all being told. Um, yeah. and they must mm. have all come f- from the same place mm. or at least eventually be tied back to the same place. Yeah. I think Lynch is a lot more linear than I think people give him credit for and generally if something is dropped into your eyeline it's going to end up looping back and relating itself to something Mm. later on down the line yeah yeah so yeah so we have this um, payoff going and then the next scene uh we're at the diner and we're getting to see coop Coop in action now with uh, daria daria ray and um jack who's his mechanic they're sitting at a booth talking about the deal that there's going to go down i know and it's so strange you know because evil coop or doppel coop or, or whatever you're calling him you know, he's a lone ranger to a certain extent, and you, mm. know, you only we only expect him to be operating alone. You know, n- no one is worthy of his time. That he's obviously, you know, in control and in charge, and can control people from this upper place or whatever it is. Yeah. But you see him just hanging out and having mm. coffee or beer or whatever it is. I can't remember. Yeah, but, but it's an unusual. It's an unusual situation because he wants mm. this information of Ray mm. about um, Hastings secretary. He wants the information. That's right. He doesn't need it. Exactly. No. Yeah. I don't need anything, Ray. This is a beautiful telling moment, I think, about Mm, the doppelganger. Yeah. I really see him as this kind of, like, being of rampant want with no balance. And it kind of brings in, and I suppose this is kind of like the Mark Frost element, it it, it makes me think of Buddhist thought and how the basis of all human suffering always comes down to want. The original Coop himself was always such a always such a being who always seemed to think about far more what he needed and not what he wanted and was almost wary of some of mm. the things that he wanted because he knew that want had often gotten him into trouble in the past. But, yeah, Doppelkoop is just want. He yeah. is just want. And, yeah, good golly, does he bring suffering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in My Life, My Tapes, um, Cooper talks about how important Tibetan philosophy has been to him and this idea of distributing mm. life back to the bare needs, and that's where pure satisfaction and happiness comes from. And even when he's in situations like in the second season when he goes to One-Eyed Jack's and he's got the Bureau's money and he wants to make money, more money back for the Bureau, and there's this idea mm. that he's completely detached from any of those sorts of things. So, it's yeah, it is kind of fascinating to see this side of him be so powerful from here we go to i think the very first time that we've seen something that looks really really familiar hawk 
talking to the log lady on his mobile, maybe not so familiar, but he's walking around with a flashlit forest in, around Twin Peaks, and we've got some music cues that we have from Battle of Menti, which has been a very, very rare thing mm. up until this point. Mm. So that's, I think a lot of people were like, oh, here we are, we're back home, and then Hawk is talking to the log lady, and uh, it feels like they're on, you know, they actually say, where are you, your log and I are on the same page, there's supposed to be something happening here tonight, the stars turn and a time presents itself. Mm-hmm. Hawk and the log are on the case. Yeah, I know. yeah, so he's basically following her instructions to investigate Cooper. Um, and so he wanders up through Glastonbury Grove, and then we see uh, the opening to the to the lodge, uh, the red room or waiting room appear. And then we cut. And so we don't. This is the thing. Like I assumed at this point that that Hawk had discovered it and he was able to access it. Particularly going back to the phrase for earlier, where there is someone in the house, which is the very beginning, but. Does he see it or does it just appear and he can't see it? That's the thing. I don't mm. know. We haven't... Perhaps, um, you know, because it appears and obviously we in the audience can see it, but it appears and it has that very, you know, familiar sound as well. Yes. You know, it pulses yeah. twice, I think, and then we're inside it. Perhaps that sound is something that's mm. calling to Hawk rather than the visual. Yes, um, yeah. I mean, like, if I walk with me, I had that fantastic cut as well of um, bending down to pick up the ring. And it vanishes. But we don't know, did he vanish because of the ring or did Lynch just choose to fade to black at that moment? Mm. <laughs> it's never mm. really resolved. And that's there's one of these sorts of beautiful meta moves where you're like, oh, that's the, is that the director or is it the story? Mm. Did you have any particular thoughts about this scene of Hawk and Log Lady being the spiritual heart of the town of Twin Peaks, I suppose? I suppose so. I also thought a lot about that thing that Coop says. I think it's in the second half of the second season where he says to Hawk if I'm ever lost I hope that you're the one who comes to find me yes and yeah I feel like this is I don't know it's it's a really nice throwback and I think it's the sort of it's I, a I reward it's, to Lynch's viewers absolutely I think, definitely <laughs> because obviously everyone loves well Coop and Hawk there's there's almost nothing you know they're just so warm I mean I feel like all of the characters are warm which is why when we return to them or we see them they are instantly even though they might just be brief on screen or do nothing at all particularly of note there's just some kind of instant connection to them mm. um, and because they're all the same actors as yeah. well there's yeah. just something and, about that and Hawk was always one of those characters that watching the original series I always wanted to see more from I always wanted to see him elevated I suppose mm, in, in yeah. importance and actually getting this story continuation to see him have this real kind of like spotlight role mm. is really great and Michael Horse is amazing yeah he's had such a strong face so mm. expressive one thing I've noticed um, when we cut back to Twin Peaks, everything is happening super, super, super slow, like mm-hmm. slower than it ever used to. And I know that that's possibly partly to do with, oh, look, it's a town stuck in, in the past. But there, these things last for so long. Every shot with Dr. Jacoby and his spades, it's just eternal. Like mm-hmm. Lucy and Andy obviously got instructed to speak much more slowly than they ever did before. Yeah. And the same thing with Hawk and Log Lady. There's so much pausing. There's so much lingering. Because, you know, when Cooper turned up, he was almost out of, you know, a Gilmore Girls sort of speed of you know being caffeinated and talking quickly and having lots of ideas and moving through and being rationalist and so I feel that there's some, something else going on here as well to do with the way that people are speaking because they're also also like particularly with Lucy and Andy you know their quirkiness is kind of played up but it's slowed down so much that it's also like the jokes just do, kind of die as it doesn't well as, work as well it's, it's does weird it? isn't it yeah, yeah but I feel but like there's it must a be sincerity to um to Hawk and Log Lady that works really well yeah. Oh, yeah. with this with this slowness yeah they're definitely meant to be deliberately moving mm. yeah feel. for sure and particularly with with Log Lady I mean you want her to be on screen as long as possible really mm. <laughs> yeah 
Um, and so now we get uh, to look inside the Red Room. And this is the first time we've seen the Red Room in 16 by 9 HD. It looks so fantastically vivid. Um, and that's the first thing that struck me is because I've looked, you know, everybody's seen these images countless times, but usually it was quite indistinct. But uh, then we get the. So these scenes in the Red Room, I feel, feel you can break down to a ridiculous degree, and other places can probably do this even better. But we've got one arm, one armed man sitting next to Cooper. And they're both kind of frozen. And then the great line that's turned up a million times over the internet in the last couple of weeks is, is it future or is it past? Lol, thanks, Lynch, for doing the nostalgia joke for us. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah. We, we didn't even have to do it ourselves. <laughs> and then um, the one-eyed man says, someone is here, which made me think, you know, Hawk's entered the, entered the red room, but we don't see him if he has. But maybe Hawk, you know, enters it in a different way because you know, he's contacting his heritage, TM, Mm. Like, her instruction. <laughs> yeah, I just assumed he meant Laura. Well, so she did I. well, yeah, she does appear. Well, this, actually, she's introduced by the sound of backward footsteps, which is yes. really interesting because that's how we've seen other people introduced in the Red Room as well. Uh, hello, Agent Cooper, you can go out now. Did anyone else cry at that? Because I, I did. Emotional. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did, and I, I remained emotional throughout Cheryl Lee's entire time on screen. Mm. I just thought... That was so beautiful. And sorry if we were going to talk about this oh, in no. a bit, but I just want to get to it the way, I mean, the way she was introduced by her footsteps, you know, she's this like, you know, visual, which I mean, she's a vision, you know, she's beautiful. She's dressed to the nines. She's wearing heels. And, and of course you get this, you know, terrific um, sound editing uh, to introduce her mm. in the same way that, you know, the, the vocals are played with and everything. Um, but, you know, this key of, you know, introducing the beautiful woman by the sound of their footsteps and all of that is just completely shifted here. But in, such a nice way and then her her face it's just it's all so incredible and the way that there was just something uncanny about her I mean obviously there is she's in the Black Lodge there's something uncanny about everyone and everything but you know her the way her eyelids the way she blinked there was something going on there like some Whether kind they of played it backwards yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah they every time she blinked they like paused it and then played it backwards or something mm -hmm. and um you know, everything to do with that, I just, I was so, I was so absorbed the whole time. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was brilliant. Um, I think there's really something really interesting, probably worth pointing out now as well, is how time is being played with here. So there's something like, so what you were saying with the backwards blinking and that sort of mm. thing, um, is slightly reminiscent of the way that the uh, figure in the glass box in episode one, sorry, part one moved. So it was like flickering back and forth. And then when it burst out, the the couple were frozen. They weren't yeah. moving. Yeah. Or anything. So there's this. High, I think this flickering has something to do with moving back and forth through time quickly, or it's signifying that you're we're looking at something that's taking place in a different on a different temporal plane. Yeah. This that figure in the glass box. I just got the sense that it was walking back and forth, almost pacing and turning its head because you kept seeing. I mean, you couldn't see its face, but that its mouth was open almost and that it was just turning its head. And so I think you're right, Andy, possibly mm. something going on there. Well, yeah. And in future episodes, this becomes even more apparent. But, you know, that line, is it future or is it past? I don't think it's necessarily a play to, like, you know, the nostalgia joke, although it very well could be. But, you know, of course, it's, it's obviously related to something in the show. It's mm. just so, you know, kind of essential. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that the next lines are, who are you? I'm Laura Palmer. Um, I'm dead, but yet I live. So this, I think, suggests that they haven't seen each other for quite a while, even though they've been both residents in in the lodge. 
for quite a while. And then we get her to say her, one of her, another one of her signature lines, which you know sometimes my arms bend back. Well, she said that before. Yes. Before yeah. she said, "I'm Laura Palmer." She said, "I've I think I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back." Mm. You know. And then she says, "Yes, Why? I am." Yeah. So, so there's something going on there as well. Yeah. That first she would doubt, and then she would. Clarify. It's like they pass the test, mm. I think, to recognise each other. Yeah, That's what I yeah, guess, possibly. Um, and then, yeah, but then we also we get even more of like what we saw in episode three in the very first um, season, which is her kissing him and then whispering something into mm. his ear. Yeah, I I was very, I really made a note of that moment just purely because she had this beautiful sweet smile just before she kisses him, and then she breaks away and she whispers something into his ear. I wanted to get a lip-reading expert (laughs) next to me to be like, what was it? It would have been played backwards anyway. You wouldn't have been able to figure it out. Um, And she whispers something to him and he just ends up with this look on his face and and Carl McLaughlin makes this this kind of like broken sound or this Mm. sad sound and as if he's kind of like reacting to what she's saying in some sort of pain. Yeah. And... I, I keep thinking about that moment and going, what what did she say to him? Or or more importantly, what was the emotional resonance of what she said to mm. him? And will he, you know, if, if he breaks out, um, will he remember it? Yeah. Well, it was a beautiful, there was a reverse shot from the ending of Fire Walk With Me where where she's sitting on the couch and he and Cooper's standing over her with his arm on her shoulder and we got a like really nice reverse shot here so I think she's kind of welcoming she realises he's you know been suffering she recognises that so there's a particular connection being made here where he's I feel like he's kind of passed another test which is to, to be existing for this amount of time in uh, in the lodge mm. and so now it's time for him to go out and move on to the next stage um, and although he doesn't seem to know where he is so I think I feel like his soul has been either tortured or there's been some sort of um, some brutality. kind of limbo effect yeah um, and then we see the tree slash the arm. Oh my god! One armed man is like leading us, leading us and oh through god. this, which I think is really cool because he's a really good guy. So yeah. I I wrote down what I yelled at my telly when I first saw the arm tree, which was, "What the ever loving goddamn fuck is this shit?" <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that's how I took it. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> while while also realizing after I did reading afterwards, like this this image of a of a spindly, you know, le- leafless tree yeah. is Which I think like is it metal? Metal or it's reflecting like light. reflecting yeah. somehow. Yeah. And this this imagery kind of goes back with Lynch all the way back to a razor head. Yes. Yeah. 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 Particularly that the strobing strobing light effect on it was really cool. Um, but actually, just before that, I forgot to say that Laura gets sucked off into space. She does. Yeah. Yes. Do we have or, any or sucked off to some other realm. Yeah. Do, do we know, have any ideas where we think she is? Is she in the glass box? Possibly. Good yeah. call. I hadn't thought of that. I was thinking she was falling through space where the angels don't even hear her and she doesn't know if she falls faster or slower. Yeah. I don't mm. know. I've always kind of felt that the Laura that is represented in the Black Lodge is more of a remnant of Laura than Laura herself. Because, of course, we've seen that sequence in Fire Walk With Me where her blood gets spilled by Bob within the Black Lodge mm. and that's the only physical part of Laura that actually makes it into the Black Lodge. Mm. So I've always kind of just assumed that she's some kind of representation but she's not the whole so maybe well you know maybe she's still in the woods in twin peaks yeah well this is another theory is that there is Um, an evil like her doppelganger is now possibly on earth yeah an evil one or mm. 
possibly. Yeah, yes. yeah. Andy's nodding, yes. Yeah, sorry, yes, yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a theory. I'm just saying that you know, we're basically 14 minutes into a two-hour film. Yeah, I mean, I hope... I, I think we all hope that, you know... I mean, Laura comes back somehow and he's, he's no longer punished. Um, mm, but, yeah. we'll, I mean, we'll see. There's obviously a few things that need to happen before that point. Yes, yeah. Um, so I thought this uh, the tree slash arm was brilliant. It's super exciting to see this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. It was just glorious. I know, a I know. A bag of flesh with a mouth <laughs> on the top of a metal tree. I know, and I love that, 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 Lynch, that interview with Lynch where the interviewer says, well, you know, what's that about? That's crazy. And he's like, yeah, it's just, it's the arm. It's the arm. And the interviewer says, like, um, it looks like a brain to me. Is it a brain? <laughs> it's just a head. But it, I mean, it pretty much looks like a brain to me. No, it's just a head. Mm. <laughs> I love Lynch in interviews. Yeah. It's great. But that, I mean, the tree as well, you know, it, if you think about the sound of the trees in Twin Peaks, it's kind of maybe a little bit of a cliche to talk about the sound of the wind in the trees, or at least it is in film studies anyway. But also, <laughs> it's super important. And obviously, it's something that I've dedicated a lot of years to. Yes, um, so I should, always as a sound expert. I well. should yes. not, de like, um, denounce my great love. Um, but, you know, that, that we've got this tiny little spindly tree in the Black Lodge as well that is making this, like, tiny creaky noise um, mm. and then also talking and, like, kind of just constantly drifting and, you're like, is it the same air that's yeah. outside? I don't know. You know, is the, where is the connection? Um, but I just think that's so, that's so great, you mm. know. It's like this little, um, you know, synecdoche, evil synecdoche of Twin Peaks, maybe, mm. somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And he keeps saying, I am the arm and I sound like this. And then we get a cut to um, the hallway, the red draped hallway with the Venus de Milo armless Venus de Milo statue at the end. Yes. Which makes me go, oh, come on, gender studies. You can do this. You can do this. You work it out. Like, why is, okay, why is she not got arms and why is she, and why, you know, is he the arm? He's like a manifestation. He's also kind of calling the shots as well here. He's saying, you cannot go out yet. You know, you, you have to wait for him to come back in. So there's, mm. yeah, there's, there's a really like nice dynamic playing out here because Cooper is trying to connect with, his other side, his other self, and this, this particular, and this is in, the, in this state, we're not quite getting the connection necessary. And so, this is where we learn that the evil Cooper has to come back into the Black Lodge if the good Cooper is to go back out. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely in some, you know, real traditional old school doubling going on. Exactly, here. yeah. But also, this is like some ground rules being laid down with, via code, of course, because that's the way that mm. not only Lynch, but Lynch's character, Gordon Cole, talks, who we will see later. At the end of this scene, uh, we have a cut to Cooper and the mechanic Jack, who we saw in the diner earlier. Cooper takes the key, he looks at his shiny new Cadillac. Double um, Coop, double, double Coop. Coop. Double Coop, sorry. <laughs> and Double Coop massages Jack's face in a very sinister way for a very long time. Oh my god. <laughs> double Coop really does have this kind of really overpowering sense of menace. Like, yeah. you're never, even if the hair wasn't different, you would absolutely know which Coop was on screen. Well, his eyes. Mm. His eyes are black. It's this black dead-eyed stare and when he stands he has this like really taut carriage you know he's he's immovable you're not going to get him to do anything mm. that he doesn't mm. want to do and he's going to stare you down if you try it fuck Karl McLaughlin's good yeah yeah he hasn't I don't know if he's been this malevolent before mm. he's really 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 good at it and then we have this um, the amazing scene with Daria in the motel room and this in the, again struck me as a, like a brilliant little micro noir thing happening where she, you know, we start with her on the phone saying, shit, I have to get off the phone. Cooper comes in, has a weird suitcase. 
then uh, there's some pretty malevolent stuff happens. Yes, Why indeed. You, now, this is so weird to see actual physical violence to a woman being so brutal and on, in a show like this. Well, not really. Well, I know he has to be evil, but I, it's just usually such a taboo thing now. It is a taboo thing now, and I did see there were a couple of articles floating around saying, like, oh, all the violence against women in, in the new Twin Peaks is just, you know, so outdated and retrograde. And I'm like, yeah, because it's not like this isn't a continuing problem in mm. every single society across the world that and just every keeps single, on happening. You know, like other film maybe as well, you know, contains violence against women, which mm. is... Obviously, gets too much at, at times, but like, why blame Lynch for it? Yeah, I also feel like the original series of Twin Peaks was so, it was so adamant in its tone that this sort of violence, particularly happening in the home and particularly happening against women, is the most horrific thing that can possibly mm. happen. And mm. the fact that it happens so often and no one talks about it and it's a secret, you know, with, within these these suburban houses is, is horrific. And that's the most terrifying thing about the show. So I'm kind of... I'm really looking askance at people who are going, oh, this is really horrible and awful. And I'm like, this is what this show has always been about. Yeah, that's mm. true, Hayley. And I love that he washes his hands afterwards. <laughs> He's still Cooper mm. in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that is really, yeah, the, the most terrifying thing about Doppelcoop is that He's he has these echoes of of Coop within him all the time, and he just shows that even someone as as good and pure as Coop is capable in their hearts of the most violent and foul behaviour. Like we all are. That's what we're all mm. capable of. We all have that darkness, and we all have that choice. We all have those choices that we can make on the way down into, you know, mm. some kind of nefarious spiral. Mm. And Doppelkoop just shows you basically that, that basically that that other side of the coin of you can have basically, you know, the greatest guy you've ever met, but if he makes some choices, then all of a sudden he turns into this horrific mm. person who you who who you don't recognize or who is terrifyingly recognizable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, I think it was a, it's such a fascinating little case, and you could break this scene down. I think for su for such a long time because it is such an interesting dynamic, of, like a shifting power where she, Daria thinks she's got the goods on him and she's going to kill him, and then he want, then he borrows her gun for a job, which he, of course he then uses. But then the, her struggle was so visceral and so powerful, and it didn't seem like there was it was acting. It felt really, really like he was mm. there was. It reminded me was, a lot of Maddie's murder yes. in in season two, which yeah. was one of the most hor horrific scenes I think I've ever seen. Mm. You know, yeah, it was so unexpected and yeah, so it was so protracted. And, yeah, yeah, ages. Yeah, uh, and so we also as soon as um, he puts a pillow over her head and shoots her. Uh, he he goes and washes his hands, and then he immediately talks to Philip Jeffries, and we were all like, <gasps> Bowie what? alert, Bowie Claxon, what the hell's happening here? Are we going to get him? And then the voice of Philip Jeffries comes up on the phone or satellite radio or whatever it is, and it doesn't sound like him at all. No, no. Um, I I do enjoy the uh, glorious vision of Lynch showing us how old men think computers work. <laughs> I'm really hoping for a lot more of this. It brings me joy every time. But yeah, the really interesting thing that Philip Jeffries, inverted commas, because do we know if it's him or not, yeah. says is you are going back in tomorrow and I will be with Bob again. Mm. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just nonsense, people. No, <laughs> it's stuff no. happening here. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's really sticking. There is a thread of narrative we can occasionally refer to. 
Uh, and then we get Jennifer Jason Lee turning up in Jason. Unexpected Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. Very exciting. Although that, that that whole sequence was just so disturbing for several on yeah. several levels. I I I could have gone my whole life without hearing the line "Oh, you're nice and wet." Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, and like, look, I know that even with the terrible hair and the really bad fake tan, you know, Double Coop looks like Karl McLaughlin, which for me personally yeah. is strongly attractive. <laughs> and many women are attracted to dangerous men, but why are any women fucking Double Coop? I don't understand. Yeah. He is wrong. He is fundamentally. Wrong. Yeah, he's like a gross pimp. He is, he is. And even by the way he talks, he doesn't talk like a human being mm. at all. He he has these weird statico it's it's like he's kind of learnt how to speak from yeah. maybe observing people or or I don't know, doing a long distance course in English mm. or something. <laughs> but he he never sounds right. Yeah. I was setting up my TV to watch the finale of a show called Twin Peaks. It's Twin Peaks and it's very I panic and change the subject to the Twin Peaks reboot till she gets bored. I mean she totally gave up on Twin Peaks. It's too David Lynch. Experience. Brilliant! <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Meanwhile, in the red room. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So we get the line two, five, three. Time and time again. Bob, Bob, Bob. Go now, go now. Which sounds to me like this, like an album by some sort of early British post-rock group. But apparently, it's going to be some sort of code that we need to pay attention to. So now we, instead of being like it's not your time to go now, now he has to go. So Goodcoop is trying to re-enter the world. But he can't get through. And much like episode 29, he's trying the wrong route to get out of the Red Room. So last time in episode 29, it was posited that it was because he was showing imperfect courage and this was why he was fallible and why he became inhabited. And then when he was trying to leave, um, the uh, man from another place was saying, wrong way. And so, Rube, um, so Coop took him literally and thought, oh, I must turn around and go in another direction. But actually he was just going with the wrong approach. So I think this might be what's happening here again, because uh, he's when he emerges, he's you know quite he's not the the good coop that we know and love. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting that he also encounters an image of Leyland yes. while he's trying to get out. Also, I I I'm, I try not to do this because I feel that commenting on the differences in actors appearances after a long period of time is crass mm-hmm. and mm. i want to avoid as much as possible but dang ray wise has hardly aged a day yeah, bloody heck <laughs> well it was yeah i mean he turned up in so many things in the intervening years and every time yeah. it was like leyland what are you doing in that yeah. leyland what are you doing <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was like he had no other identity <laughs> yeah, it didn't but, matter every time he smiled i was like oh my god no Mm. Even though it was actually, and, and also, you know, he had artificially whitened hair in the <gasps> this second season, true. and now he has naturally mm. grey flecked hair, which mm. is very nice. But you know, that might be another reason why, yes, why he he just looks like a regular old Leyland. Yeah. God, yep. this is really hard. I really want to like move on, but there's so much to go through. Like, so Leyland, it looks like he's holding his breath. He's 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 got unnaturally dark skin. He says, "Find Laura." So it feels like has he just managed to be fl- flicker into the into the White Lodge for a moment and then he's going to mm. suck back again. I don't like. Mm. It's hard to tell, but there's obviously a reason why he's speaking the way he is and yes. the way he is. And and he's clearly under duress. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, but man, it was fantastic to see his okay. face again. Okay. Also, the point where we learn that also the arm tree mm. has a doppelganger, where mm. I kind of sat there just going like Lynch, this doubling thing has just been taken too far. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, and the one I man says something's wrong. So we have a, like a, a dissonance within the lodge here, and then the lodge starts to move. Mm. It like becomes this three-dimensional thing. So we're reminded again that they are one and the same place, um, right. occupying the same space. Uh, and then uh, the four convulses um, and the words non-existent come out. And this has been another memeable moment from it has indeed from the series so far. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Cooper falls into the flow of, gla- of the glass cube and then melts through, sorry, the floor of the glass cube and melts through it in this beautiful way, which I thought was actually quite good use of special effects. Yes. Happy to be argued with. But no, I, no, that, that that was fine. The the later on bit where the cube is all of a sudden getting bigger and smaller and bigger yes, and smaller, yes, yes. that was definitely a moment where I was just like, oh man, you can just imagine Showtime just going, David, we gave you money. This is in the budget. It's cool. And he's just like curmudgeonly <laughs> flapping his hands going, no, I like it this way. Esha, Esha. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And we're back in part one. Tracy is about to enter with two lattes. And then Cooper sucked back out of the cube. Yes. So, Cooper obviously wasn't the monster that ended up no. eating the two no, coffee kids. No, I did but, like that in, in part one. Yeah. Yes. But did something follow him out? Mm. Which would which would be my guess. Yeah, I think so too. But what you mean the thing that was in the, in the glass box? Oh, yes. Right. Something followed him out from the Black Lodge. Mm. What it was. Mm. Mm. Who knows? Well, yeah. it manifested as an evil spirit, which I thought was feminine. But I could be. That was from the shape of the of the um, image in the in the glass box mm. from, the episode, from the first part. What do you see in the ink blot? <laughs> well, we have one of those coming up soon, don't Ooh. we? Well, on a on a playing card. But um, anyway, before we get to that, uh, so he's falling through space, and this is the where I think Laura went to. There's this transitional mm-hmm. thing, but, but the way he's fil- he's filmed, his hands are huge and bulbous. He's this like the camera is shaking. It feels like it's being physically shaken. Um, and then we have these beautiful sounds, these hor- horrible, dark, rushing sounds as Cooper is falling or flying or whatever he's, whatever his state he's, fall- he's going in there. Um, and then we cut to Sarah Palmer watching a wildlife documentary. Oh, my God. Wasn't that, like, Whoa. the most horrific thing you've ever sat through? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, going back, obviously, to just the roots of this, this total despair of the show and of the violence mm. and of the core, which is, you know, mm. parents losing their child. But, you know, it has all of these kind of elements of, you know, horror movies as well. She's watching these, uh, you know, big cats eat each other, basically. Yeah. With, um, with the, with the colour is really interesting in this show. In this yeah, movie. on this big widescreen TV with, like, vivid sounds. Um, vivid red. And she can't tear her eyes away. It's It's so awful. And, you know, she has aged. I feel like she has aged very noticeably, but she still looks the same, oh, just yeah. smaller and sadder. Exactly, mm. exactly as you would imagine Sarah Palmer. Yeah, it's mm. it, it's honestly so heartbreaking because you just think to yourself, oh, she has literally been by herself in mm. probably just this arrested emotional yeah. State, yeah, state for grief. the past 25 yeah. years. Yeah. Because yeah. she wouldn't get over that. You you would not get over that. But Remember the last time we saw her in episode 29, she was brought into the double R to pass on a message to Major Briggs with uh, J- Jacoby, and she said, um, the good Dale is in the lodge, in that really dark, distorted voice. Mm. Um, so I feel like there is there is still a chance, there is still a like link. She still offers a link to, um, that could be used at a later date. I'm hoping that's mm. the case. And then we come to the very final scene of, the, uh, of part two, which is the band Chromatics playing at the Roadhouse. Mm. We've featured Johnny Jewell, who does a lot of the music that we're going to be hearing soon. 
Um, and it pretty much has been, speaking of things that haven't changed much, um, it's looking very identifiably with the same bang bang bar neon sign out the front and the same people watching implausible bands <laughs> <laughs> while they um, eye each other off. Um, and we could, like, possibly the most memed thing so far, which is James walking in and then... Oh, my God. How did, you, how did people feel about seeing James and Shelley again? Shelley I was very excited about because Shelley was was always a character I felt very positively mm-hmm. about. Um, the, the, I, I feel like, yeah, the most ridiculed line that has come out of the <laughs> new episode so far is Shelley saying, you know, James was always cool... And, of course, every single fan has just thrown up their hands in outrage. When did she ever pay any attention to James originally? Is he the father of her daughter? Who's the father of her daughter? You know, Mm. she's, you know, that revelation. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he is. No, he's not, no. (laughs) Um, But there's that and... Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's it's the sort of thing that, like, you you rack your mind and you're like, did James and Shelley... like ever interact in, mm. in in the in the original series, and there's also the thought of well, has something happened in the interim mm. that has made James rise quite quite highly in well, in Shelley's estimation? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I think originally he was meant to be epitomised cool, and then he's just got so ridiculed over time because <laughs> he was he was lumped with not only being James being kind of cool but he had to portray the love aspect of Laura for us to be able to understand that side of herself in, as the town reflected her yeah. and so that was kind of difficult that's a really yeah. difficult role to play and it's and, it, and there's also the comparison of like the, the other young teenage male in the show Bobby who mm. Bobby was an asshole, but he was cool yeah yeah, yeah. he, he was pretty. yeah exactly mm. um, we also at the table um, next to Shelley you have Australia's own Gia Caridis Hi, there you Gia. Go. Hi, Gia. We'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> they talk about uh, Shelley's daughter, um, who's played by Amanda Seyfried, who we haven't seen yet, but that's Ooh. a great piece of casting. Oh, ah, isn't it? There you go. Mm. My daughter is with the wrong guy. Are you kidding? And so forth. So Jacques Renault is still tending the bar, and I don't understand how he's managed to keep doing that, because I would have thought that his history would have caught up with him at some point. Maybe not that many skilled bartenders in year old Twin Peaks. Yeah, possibly, yeah. I don't know. But it did, did strike me that Je- Shelley and James would have crossed paths at the double R mm. at some time, even in the in the first couple of seasons. I don't think they ever spoke to each other, but they would have been familiar with each other. Mm. Um, and that brings us to sections. Okay, yeah. so did you have favourite Lynchian moments from part two? It has to be the arm tree, doesn't it? <laughs> it's the most ridiculous it's... thing that no one else would ever do. Yeah, it's pretty hard to beat. Mm. Um, I did enjoy the hollow bodies hollow naked bodies um on the couch yes in the in the building in manhattan yeah yeah that was that's the way they were frozen and they instantly became these models yeah yeah yeah. and where did all of their insides go (laughs) fascinating yeah i love that um mine i think of the figure in the cell with the frozen expression i'm i'm fascinated Mm, by this mm. yeah it's so beautiful it's so interesting um and sounds what was standing up for you sonically? I love that because I am so obsessed with sound and everything. I love that David Lynch, and he's always really into sound and doing his own sound, but he's credited as sound designer in all of these parts, um, which is really great because so often I think, why isn't the director more invested in the sound of, of, of his or her creation? But in this, he so clearly is, and that's so great. But the 
the sound in the very opening scene with Bill Hastings scratching his head was just it was it was too <laughs> loud for my liking and I was like why you know it doesn't make that I don't know I obviously don't have you know a number two shave or whatever it is but I was just like it wouldn't make that sound and there's, there's something going on there that just is obviously that's intensified for a very specific purpose and that's to you know increase the anxiety of just this grating like mm. scratching sound that is such a key device so that's my uh, sound highlight yeah okay interesting yes uh me personally it was actually the chromatic song shadow that really really made it for me like twin peaks has just been great for me music wise because all i listen to is dream and twee pop and also (laughs) the collected works of brandon flowers who of course we would know from the killers troubadour of the dark heart of Mm, american of of america and this is where andy finds out that my music taste is terrible (laughs) and he's really upset now I mean, the Las Vegas connection, I can appreciate yes, that. Yes, exactly. pretty much it. Lols. Uh, enough of that opinion. I'll, I'll, win, I'll win you over one day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just feel that this song is just, it, it's really beautiful. It's wistful. It obviously throws back to Julie Cruz. And I feel like the, the lyrics themselves are such a really beautifully sad reflection on the emotions of of the scene obviously we're we're seeing these characters that we haven't seen in a long time the way one of them speaks about the other is very has like a dissonance with us of no no that's not what they're like and it's this whole idea of like no one is ever as they seem things change people can become strangers people who you never thought would would connect have have a connection and then sometimes it can be broken so quickly there's that really great line of you know now you're just a stranger's dream i took your picture from the frame and now you're nothing like you seem and there's just something about that that is really really stuck with me and picture frames picture frames and Big big deal photos are a big deal and yeah i feel like this is just this lovely beautiful nugget of a song that is really kind of encapsulated what these early episodes are kind of all about. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this balance of the new and the familiar. Mm. It's really strong. Mm, I love that. Um, and any uh, throwbacks? Is there anything that people thought was particularly uh, reminiscent of earlier Lynchian work? Well, we mentioned it before, but the um, the sometimes my arms bend back, that just tickles yeah. me, that line. <laughs> so um, I love, you know, that stuff. Um, I think Laura altogether is a yeah, marvellous throwback. Like, yeah, it's so wonderful to see her moving again and see her mm. alive again. Mm. Yeah, And this particular shot where she was looking down and she looks so young just after she mm. kissed Coop. Mm. I was like, oh, my God, that's like 20-year-old Laura. Again. Yeah, really yeah. Strange. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. But I think my favourite sound moment was her shoes, mm. footsteps. It was, yes. it was brilliant. <laughs> Um, so that brings us to the end of our analysis of part two of Twin Peaks The Return. Thank you very much for listening and thank you so much for those who've put us in podcast charts and that sort of thing. That was a huge surprise to see that people <laughs> had time to listen to us because there are God knows how many Twin Peaks podcasts so out many, there. So many, so many. Try, try and listen to some of the others yeah. as None well. of them, um, apart from this one, star Australia's biggest Twin Peaks oh, fan, okay. Andy <gasps> Hazel. This yeah. is true. This yeah. is very true. 
And I feel like this was something that Andy Hazel was born to do. And I'm so very happy that um, we are doing it. Well, that you are doing it and that I well, just happen to be here. Oh, well, and you will be here for our next two episodes yes. as well again. because we're greedy and we love you and we yeah. want you on as much as possible. Oh. And there's much more sound and noir things to analyse too. There are indeed. So many more things to analyse. Yes. <laughs> um, for those unfamiliar, um, the ABC, Australia's national broadcaster, did an interview with me and said that I was the biggest Twin Peaks fan in the country, which is a blatant lie. <laughs> I'm sure I've, I've met bigger fans and I'm sure there are plenty more out there but that's uh, yeah it's helped I think <laughs> I've been doing quite a few interviews about this podcast recently and it's been very fun I can't wait to be interviewed as Australia's like most vague <laughs> Twin Peaks fan or just most shambolic Twin Peaks fan of just like oh yeah this sounds great let's do it <sighs> no you're bringing much more than the naivety <laughs> I'm not going to believe that, believe that for a second thanks for listening hashtag glass box and chill <laughs> Copyright Monkey Cable. <laughs>